Hello and welcome to Film Exploration with Ash Harry and we're coming in really sharp and fast with all the episodes during season 4 and we're focusing on the noughties decade and for today's episode we're going to explore Michael Bay's 2001 war epic Pearl Harbor produced by Jerry Bruckheimer and starring Ben Affleck, Josh Hartnett, Alec Baldwin, John Voigt and Kate Beckinsale. December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Now, besides that famous opening speech from President Roosevelt's address to Congress, the rest of the speech that exists in the movie today has been rewritten or added in for some kind of dramatic effect. And um, actually, no, the uh, the last line of that monologue is actually part of the speech as well, which is, no matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Everything else besides those two bits was scripted by the writers of this movie. Now, Pearl Harbor a film that portrays the actual events of the late 1941, a turning point in World War II, much to the sadness and shock of the American people and even the world. Now, for those of you who are new to this event or haven't seen the film or haven't picked up a history book recently or rather Googled it, Pearl Harbor is an American naval base that sits on the coast of Hawaii and it was tragically the victim of a surprise attack from the Japanese during the course of World War II. Now, for the reason of why Japan attacked America, I mean, in brief terms and without going into too much detail, basically Japan was determined to modernize and considerably expand its power. And this determination relied on having access to raw materials, which is primarily the aim of Japan's war in China and why it invaded in Malaysia as well. And the U.S., countered Japan by stopping exports of scrap metal and oil and petrol and the Japanese government basically viewed this as a virtual attack on Japan and from there it just sort of kicked off. So the film, this is Michael Bay's fourth film after Bad Boys, The Rock and Armageddon coming off really heavy with Armageddon and what I mean when he was coming off really heavy was everyone knew who Michael Bay was and what kind of films he does. He made a lot of money with Armageddon, it was a big blockbuster and everyone was waiting for his next film. So he was given full confidence and backing for his next project. Little did the studio know that Bay wanted to set the tone and atmosphere of one of the most shocking events in the last century. An event that, to recreate, would cost the studio more than the actual cost of damages than the actual attack in 1941. The film's budget was given to Bay before the movie even started. The production budget was $140 million, which at the time was the largest ever given to a movie before filming had even started. It made almost half a billion globally at the box office, and it continued Michael Bay's strong reputation for being a blockbuster king. And, you know, it just sort of cemented his reputation. I mean, in my opinion, his first five films were very vintage Michael Bay. Bad Boys, The Rock, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, and Bad Boys 2. After that, he directed a film called The Island with Ewan McGregor, which wasn't produced by Jerry Bruckheimer, and I think that's where the downfall started. Um, and you could see something was missing from the island. It's still a great film, but it wasn't vintage Michael Bay. And then unfortunately for us and for him, he um, directed the first Transformers movie, which was quite good. But then he directed four of its sequels over the span, you know, over a span of 10 years, which sort of denied him from doing anything proper. Um, but he's actually come back now. He's directed two other films, uh, 13 Hours, which was on Prime. It's about the 
the US troops in Benghazi, which is a great film. I loved it. And then he did uh, t- uh, Six Underground with Ryan Reynolds, which is on Netflix. And that was also very good as well. And you can see a sort of trademark car chasing, high explosions, big, big bangs and everything like that. So it's good to see Michael Bay sort of stepped away from Transformers because that took too much of his life away. Now, with a movie of this size, with the responsibility of pulling off a historic representation of an event that still had living survivors kicking around, of a studio breathing down your neck after dropping $150 million on it, with critics criticising the basis of the love story in the movie because it didn't play well with fans, and questions on how, they were be- how they're going to able to pull off these disaster scenes, how they're going to make it convincing enough for an audience to watch... And also, special effects in 2000 and 2001 wasn't really on the high, so they had no idea how Michael Bay was going to do these action sequences, especially the the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And also, keeping the sensitivity and emotions of Japanese and American viewers in mind when portraying this movie through his vision. I mean, Michael Bay had given him an enormous project. It was monumental. Now, I'll brush past the casting of the movie. I mean, it obviously reunites Ben Affleck and Michael Bay, who had just worked together on Armageddon and an interesting role for Ben Affleck because he plays a fighter pilot in this movie. Ben Affleck has actually got a massive phobia of flying in, um, in uh, real life. And he thought if he takes on this role, you know, f- you know, fight his fears kind of thing. He actually makes a dig about this in his, um, in Armageddon because he's also flying in that movie too. But yeah, for this role, he actually had to act his heart out because he was actually in the planes. They took four months of flying lessons and they'd get a proper pilot to fly them up in the air. And then he would duck down and then Ben Affleck would fly the plane. So he'd steer from left to right and maneuver it. So that was actually him in the plane when you see those shots as well. And there was a relatively unknown actor at the time of the name of Michael Fassbender. Um, and he had his first ever audition for the role of Danny in this movie, but he didn't get it because he, no, he just didn't really nail it off. Um, but Michael Fassbender didn't really get big until, I guess, the movie 300 came out, but he was a supporting role in that as well. Um, and then I think people started to see him in Inglorious Bastards in 2009, and then he started doing the lead roles as well. And I think that's when Michael Fast ended up becoming, you know, started to become more established. But obviously he lost that role to um, Josh Hartnett. I think Josh Hartnett and Ashton Kutcher were the final two for the role of Danny, and Josh Hartnett won the role. I mean, all of the actors in this movie attended a vigorous training camp in preparation for the role. It was like pre-Ranger training course, they said in the commentary. And Ben Affleck found the experience so painful and so horrible. And he was about to quit on the very first day. But he was the star of the movie. You know, he knew word about this was going to go out. And you know, he was just starting his role. This was only four or five years after Goodwill Hunting. So, you know, he really wanted to, you know, cement himself. And obviously... Armageddon made a lot of money of the same director, so he just had to stick it through. And he said it's one of the hardest times he's had during a film. And he said this in 2015 as well, and he did a lot of films in between then. So he managed to stay on, finish the train, and of course finish the movie. I mean, his own grandpa, who, by the way, fought in World War II, um, declined to see this film, and he never has seen it, explaining that he wasn't interested in reliving the war in any way, shape, or form, which is fair enough. And then we've got a you know, great supporting cast. We've got Alec Baldwin as Doolittle. We've got John Voigt, Angelina's dad, who plays President Roosevelt in this movie, who actually chased for this role. He said he was an expert of Franklin D. Roosevelt, and uh, eventually Michael Bay just submitted and casted him. But yeah, it was a good choice for the role, I think. I mean, he wore the actual duplicates of the steel leg braces that Roosevelt had to wear in real life, and he actually he put them on, and he got bruised up, and they stayed on him for two weeks after filming. So, you know, he got pretty bad from that. 
One of the main selling points for this movie and how it reached such a high demographic wasn't the events of Pearl Harbor, not um, not not the war aspect of the film at all, but rather the love story that exists in the movie between Raph, Danny and Evelyn, played by Josh Hartnett, Ben Affleck and Kate Beckinsale. Kate Beckinsale was shooting this movie and she was shooting Serendipity with John Cusack, which is a really good film, actually. And this led to her and Ben Affleck's sort of intimate and kissing scenes to be left towards the last part of production. And by then, they've already become really good friends. So they kept laughing and they found it really awkward to do those sort of intimate scenes at the end. But the love story, this classic love triangle theme that exists in many movies, you know, Pretty in Pink, Great Gatsby, Titanic, was not seen favourable by the critics at all. I mean, the movie may have made a half a billion at the box office, but this film was slated by critics everywhere. There wasn't, I don't think there was, I don't, I couldn't find one, but there was hardly a critic that didn't comment on the film's love story in a negative way. It was ripped. There were some heavy, heartless reviews towards the love story. Michael Bay said he simply had to just ignore the critics. But he did receive a hundred, you know, he received quite a few letters from people who felt that the story rang true to the tone of the movie at the time of the event. And he found that these letters came from uh, elderly people and some of them actually survivors of the Pearl Harbor attack. And every time he gets asked about the bad reviews the film got, he simply says the only reviews I'm listening to is that of the survivors, which is fair game, I guess. But yeah, I mean, he was quite open with his vision. I mean, even before this movie was made, he wasn't aiming to sort of satisfy contemporary audiences with an up-to-date love story, but rather a 1940s love story, the type of narrative that could have been seen in films at the time of the attack. And Bay claims that one of the reasons the love story plot was so ridiculed by critics and rejected by audiences was simply because they weren't able to look at it from this perspective. They weren't able to adopt this sense of innocence and carefree attitudes necessary to accept it. And Ben Affleck backed him up. He also addressed this aspect of the story on his own commentary, especially in revelation to the much criticized champagne cork scene, which is he's trying to open a bottle of champagne and it hits him in the face and it was a bit too slapstick for people. But he just pointed out, I mean, that scene would be right at home in a 1940s romance film. So I understand what Michael Bay was trying to do there. I mean, my only reservations about this film is like the potential audience, because it it sort of glorifies an event that was maybe one of the worst events in his, in history, I think, where the attack scene lasts for 40 minutes on screen. Now, I understand the importance of showing these scenes as a way of emphasizing the vibe and emotion happening throughout this attack. But then again, the action sequences, dazzling as they are, are in respect of being used to hit a certain demographic. It's the only negative thing I will say about the movie. And with that being said, it's like, you know, it's like making a, a film about 9-11 and spending 30 to 40 minutes showing the people inside the Twin Towers being blown up, falling from the tower, the plane crashing into the building with special effects shot. You know, but that's just my opinion. I mean, when um, World Trade Center came out with Nicolas Cage, I thought they were going to follow in Pearl Harbor's footsteps. And I was like, oh, my God, don't do that. But it thankfully didn't. It had a little bit of respect for it. And it focused on the vantage point from the heroic fireman that day, um, from that day. And I think they only showed like 40 seconds of the footage of the, um, the planes going into the building or people falling out of the infamous attack. Not 40 minutes. Um, but I mean, the film's called Pearl Harbor. So, But then again, the film over there is called World Trade Center. So it's just their own different visions, I guess. It's a very interesting procedure on and process on how Michael Bay and the production team tackled the action sequences. I mean, as reserved as I am about the true reasons of portraying these scenes in such detail and with such effort, I can't help but 
appreciate the level of work that was put into it. I mean, the film actually got into the Guinness Book of Records for most explosives ever used in a movie. And when I say effort, I mean serious effort. So for one example, there's a shot of these series of six explosions in Battleship Row were filmed by like 14 cameras, right? And they were actually staged on real Navy ships. Now, while on location scale above Pearl Harbor, they're on a plane and Michael Bay looked down and he saw a line of ships just doing nothing there. And then he learned that the ships were part of this inactive fleet. So he decided to use them for the explosion. So the charges were put on the real ships on plywood for protection, right? With 700 sticks of dynamite, 2,000 feet of cord, 4,000 gallons of gasoline. And the 600-foot ship explosion took about a month and a half just to rig. That's it, just to rig with 500 individual bombs on each boat. Now, during that scene, when they're filming it, before it blows up, they had over 100 extras that were in the harbour that they had to get ready. They had six real planes that had to fly over the ship for the shot as well. So in total, the shots took seven months of coordination amongst every department on the film, which is the state of Hawaii, the Environmental Protection Agency, the US Navy, and they, all of them had to make sure everything went off without delay. In the end, the explosion themselves lasted only seven seconds, seven seconds, which compromised on film in the movie of 12 seconds of screen time. So that's seven months work for 12 seconds on screen. And that's what I mean by serious effort. And there was another really cool story of the battle sequences. There's a scene where one of the battleships capsizes, and this was actually uh, done for real. It was the USS Oklahoma in the movie. For that, the crew, and when I say crew, I mean engineers, had to construct the world's largest ever gimbal, which was another thing that broke the record books as well, which uh, a gimbal basically allows something to pivot with a calculated fashion. So it turns and it's massive. So in this case, it turns a whole uh, aircraft carrier. So it took four months to design and another couple of months to build it. So six or seven months in total. It was made of pure steel. So that means it weighed over 700,000 pounds and it could rise up to 25 degrees in the air. And it could do a 180 degree turn. So in the film, when the ship rolls over, the last 450 feet of the ship is CGI. And the rest of it is real. It's a real hundred and um, all the 150 stuntmen on there were on a real ship with the gimbal acting on the other side, which means when the ship moved, the gimbal was moving them back and forth. And it was, oh my God, I can't imagine the health and safety for that. That would have been ridiculous. But again, this just demonstrates uh, Michael Bay's tenacity towards making this movie. You can see why this film costs so much. I think it went over budget, if anything. Jerry Bruckheimer and Michael Bay agreed to give $4 million in salary in, in return for the cut of the box office, which would just so they could meet the budget. And some of the stars as well included Ben Affleck and Josh Hartnett took a drop in salary for the very same reason. The film actually did end up winning an Oscar. I think it's Michael Bay's only ever Oscar win for one of his films. He didn't win the Oscar personally, but for his films. And uh, I think it was for sound editing or something like that. But yeah, to date, this is his only Oscar win for a film. But besides the criticism he got from the love story, which he thought would be the last thing people would be moaning about, I mean, he did correctly assume that the Japanese may not have seen this film too, well, how can I put it, with open eyes, let's say. I mean, there is some reason for their uproar for this movie. So there's one particular scene that they did that really did cause a stir with Japanese people, more specifically the Japanese government. So in the movie, during the 40-minute attack sequence, um, they bomb a hospital in it, Um and that apparently never happened during the uh, actual attack in 1941. The Japanese pilots, in fact, were given strict orders not to attack civilian targets at all, which included any buildings, include um, like hospitals or schools. Even some of the survivors, the American survivors, had come out and said no. Not even the Japanese. Even when they had a straight line of attack, they would never attack any people near a hospital, which was interesting. 
And Michael Pay tried to defend this decision in the movie, simply saying, well, the act itself was awful and adding the hospital attack to make them seem more barbaric. So he wanted it in there to sort of establish the good guys and the bad guys. But that didn't go down really well. And there's also a scene when um, when we're seeing the Japanese general and the army and the high, you know, the high command just before the attack. And there's one Japanese critic and historian, actually, and he pointed out that the Japanese army would never have met outside because meeting outside in Japan is considered to be uncivilized and even barbaric in Japan. So Michael Bay got that bit wrong as well. Um, but the Japanese people weren't the only people he pissed off. I mean, he was getting into some serious trouble with American people as well. So there's a scene where the Japanese planes are taken off and they take off off a American carrier. Um, but not many people would have noticed this. I didn't notice this, but I mean, if you're an expert, um, you know what you're looking for. And the American people thought they were, you, you know, you felt they were dishonoring the dead. But Bay had some logic to it, and he kindly confronted the issue by simply saying, "Well, the Americans destroyed all the Japanese carriers later on in the war, so we had none to use, so we had to use an American carrier." And I guess they had to accept that. I mean, that was quite funny. And all the Tokyo scenes were actually shot in Indiana. So when they were lo- locating or trying to locate um, location scouting for 1942's Tokyo and what it looked like, um, they couldn't find it anywhere. Not even in Tokyo. They had to go to Indiana for it. But look, the film without a doubt is a popcorn movie. It's an emotional roller coaster backed with memories of an actual event that happened in the 1940s. I mean, during production and outside of production, this film was a struggle to make. I mean, Michael Bay tried to quit four times during the course of the movie. The actors were going through long days of filming. And you heard earlier what was being done for seconds of footage to recreate some of those action sequences. I mean... With knowing of the time and effort that went into this movie, it makes this film respected in terms of the art and trying to convey an experience to audiences. I mean, I personally love the movie, and I like most war films. I mean, but this film is more of a you know, it's a bit more of a love story with the backdrop of war. But listen, look, I'm gonna wrap it up here. Otherwise, I'm just gonna mumble on about this. Um, Oh, and speaking of wrapping up, um, so they um, you have this thing called a wrap-up party. So when a film's um, filmed every single one of their scenes, they have a wrap party to just celebrate because they've done the production stage of it. And apparently the wrap party costs more than the whole production of Billy Elliot, which came out the same month of, as Pearl Harbor, which is uh, not surprising, but still a staggering amount of money for a party. I'm not going to even say how much it is, but... Um, if you fancy googling the entire budget of Billy Elliot, then you'll get an idea of how much the uh, the party was. Um, <laughs> anyways, that's all I have time for with Pearl Harbor. And oh yeah, also, I also find myself running to Hans Zimmer's score now and again. And one of the tracks that come up is from Pearl Harbor, so um, that's another element of this film's beauty, which I forgot to mention. Hans Zimmer's score for this uh, movie is beautiful, and it's so good, and I love it. But yes, anyway, um, please subscribe to me on Google, iTunes, and Spotify. And I will be on Amazon very soon as well, which is exciting. And uh, I'm also on Instagram, Film Exploration, AH, all lowercase, all one word. And thank you uh, for listening to Film Exploration with Ash Hurry.